Namaste, everyone. Namaste. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Ganesh Swaminathan, and we're going to be discussing his book, From the Beginning of Time. Ganesh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Kushal. Really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. All right, Ganesh, before we start uh, with the discussion of the book, I always have this rule. So whenever I have a book author on, I my first question I ask to them is, why did you decide to write this book? And not only that, Ganesh, I would request you to tell everyone a bit about yourself too. So go for it. Okay. So f- first off, thanks again for hosting me, Kushal. And um, uh, and thanks to your uh, viewers for tuning in. Uh, and uh, today is uh, the Tamil New Year Day. And I assume it is the New Year Day for a lot of people. So my best wishes to everybody for a wonderful year. We've had a pretty tough year the last time around. And I, I'm hoping this one's better. So um, let's get back to your question. Why did I decide to write the book? <clears throat> um, I never imagined I would write a book in my life, ever. Right? I never. I was. I was an engineer. I enjoyed being an engineer. I. I went on to do my MBA. Uh, I was a mechanical engineer from IIT Delhi, and then I went on to do my MBA from Ahmedabad. And I was in business, and I've been in business, selling technology for more than two decades now. And so, writing a book was very far away. But I was a voracious reader as a child. I used to read a lot. I used to read books, magazines, everything that came my way when I was little. And that followed me. And I was also interested in um, in science, right? I was, uh, I was interested in science, I was a science student. And I was interested in space science. So while I did, don't have any formal training in space science, like an astronomy degree or something, I used to read a lot and kept myself abreast through interviews, uh, through um, podcasts and books and articles and so on, and so YouTube videos and so on. And um, just by um, by a strange twist of events, I, a couple of years ago, uh, not a couple of, about eight years ago, a little over eight years ago, I started reading the Puranas, right? Puranas is not something that, Puranas is something that very few people bother to read, right? Just, just to put it out there. And uh, among the engineering community, probably even fewer. But I, I don't want, that's a whole story on its own. But I, I started reading the Puranas and um, I didn't know what to expect, honestly. I mean, none of us knows what to expect because none of us has read a Purana. We just know about it as stories of gods and goddesses and kings and sages and so on and so forth. So I said, okay, maybe I'll, yeah, I, I, want, I want to do something different. I want to read something different, so I'll read one. So I started with the Matsya Purana. And uh, the, the text that I read was incredibly sophisticated, right? So you, you expect a 2,000-year-old text, right? You expect what can it have? It should be very simplistic. It should be very simplistic in its plot and its details. And when I read the Matsya Puran, I was completely engrossed, right? First thing is that it was a very sophisticated text. Like, give me, let me give you an example. Within the first 100 pages, uh, there is the... Um, now I'm reading a translation. And my Sanskrit is no good, right? Uh, but they talk about things like the political economy had not taken root. And the phrase political economy is something that had come into currency about 300 years ago. So what is it doing? What is this concept doing in a 2000 year old text? 
and so on and so on. So many other things like this. And then obviously there were references to the moon and stars, which I thought was very fascinating just because of my interest in the topic. And uh, I just read through the, I just read through the uh, entire Matsya Puran like I was reading a, a book, right? And I didn't have enough of it. So I finished it and then I ordered the Shiva Puran. And then I read the Shiva Puran completely end to end. Then I wasn't satisfied. So I read the Bhagavata Puran. I read the Bhagavata Puran. And then I realized I couldn't get any more prints because, you know, nobody reads this or nobody prints them. Nobody publishes them anymore. So finally, I managed to get something that I could download on the Internet. I got the Brahmanda Puran and I printed it myself. Right. So I went to a print shop and I printed the whole PDF. And I, and I read it and then I read the Kalika Puran and the Devi Puran. And by the time you read your third or your fourth Puran, the first couple of Purans, everything is new, right? So you're kind of just getting your head around it. But by the third or the fourth Puran, what happens is that a lot of the stories are repeated, right? For example, the story of Moon and Rohini, right? It's a very commonly known story. It's repeated. You, re you read it to the second time and the third time. And you notice in the Puran, each Puran describes it with some additional detail. And if you, if you, if you are sharp enough to remember the details, then suddenly you realize, my God, if I put all these three or four stories, renditions of these stories, right, the same story together, there is a lot more detail here than what I knew, that I what I learned from either a TV serial or, or something else, right? And um, that's the first time that I realized that there's something else that's going on here, that there is much more detail here than I than I anticipated. I, I, I didn't anticipate it. And then as I kept reading, this thing began to grow on me. And then the first thing that I made that I could kind of get my head around was the moon, the story of the moon. Because even as a child, I used to think these are our holy texts and we have the moon having 27 wives. I mean, why does the moon have to have 27 wives? right? If he has to tell us a story, he could tell us a story with five wives and we'd be just as, uh, just as illuminated or just as, um, well, we'll understand it just as well. So, and that's the first thing that, that, that came across to me. Okay, so they're talking about the moon and the constellations and the path of the moon through the constellations. And then slowly over, then I started, then I realized I had to go back and now I, when I was interested in my space science, I was, I used to just read it, right? I was not kind of, but if I, now I was really, I had to go back and study it again to see, well, if, if there is congruence, between, alignment between these two. So I had to go back and study. And then I started this process over and over again. And then, um, and then at some point in time, I realized I couldn't read anymore because all of this research, just, I just had to put it out there. I, I mean, I had to get it out of my system. And so, um, like I said, I have no formal training in writing because I never imagined I'd be a writer. I'm, I'm an engineer, basically, in an MBA. I was mostly into business. But I, almost as therapy, I had to start writing this thing. I had to just get it out. And I, I had to self-publish it because who's going to publish a book about, uh, about the Puranas, about a first-time writer who has no background in the Puranas? And uh, by the grace of God, it's done well. People have reacted well to it. And so long story, but I, like I said, the short answer is I never imagined I'd write a book. And here I am actually talking about it, discussing it with you. And that was one of the reasons because it was sitting in my head. And I thought to myself, 
if I went to somebody, if I went to my dear friends, right, people that I, people from an IIT, right, and I told them, listen, uh, I think the Puranas talk about the red giant face of the sun. Even if he was my best friend, he would probably tell me to get a good night's sleep and come back and talk to him tomorrow, right? Because it just doesn't add up, right? No, it wouldn't add up for anybody. So I had to, I went through a very painful process. I had to write out a draft of the book and I had to, not a book, like five chapters. I had to very gently give it to a friend and say, can you please read it? Because I'm not sure it makes sense and you let me know if it makes sense. And uh, he was a very well-read individual, very dear friend, very well-read individual, also an engineer from NIIT. And uh, he said, yeah, it makes sense. I think you should do a little, I mean, obviously it was very raw, but he said, you should do a little more work on it and, and so on and so forth. And almost after a year of reading, rereading, writing, rewriting, uh, the book came to me. So uh, it was, I, I never imagined I'd be here Maybe that's probably the short answer. I never imagined I'd write a book. I never imagined I'd write a book on the Puranas, let alone write a book at all. So that's life takes us where we, where we go. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Ganesh, now as you had uh, made a small presentation about the book, so what we're going to do now is uh, I'll share your presentation. And uh, so here's how it goes. Uh, in today's session, we're going to be first having a small presentation that Ganesh has prepared for us. Ganesh is going to go through the entire presentation. He's going to make his points on the book. And then uh, credit to Ganesh. Ganesh knows uh, that this is the Charvak podcast. And uh, uh, since the last month and a half, Ganesh and I have, have been having a very healthy email exchange where I've asked a few questions. So first, what we'll do is let Ganesh make his points about the book. And then maybe I will ask a few questions to Ganesh after that. And then if anybody watching this live has any questions, maybe they can ask a few questions and they will, uh, you know, we will wrap it up accordingly. So Ganesh, I'm going to move on and present your first uh, slide now. So please go for it. Yeah. <clears throat> so thanks, Kushal. Uh, so like I said, maybe as I started with most of us, uh, many of us have had stories about the sun, the moon and stars from the Puranas, right? And the book that I've written, um, that I published recently, it shows up just to kind of boil it down, it shows a couple of things. First thing is that it is a very consistent description of the universe. And I use the word consistent because we hear a story of the sun, then we hear a story of the moon, then we hear a story about some star. And we don't know whether these things come work together. And these are actually a very consistent because they follow a narrative of the universe. They, are, they follow a consistent narrative of the universe, right? Um, and one more thing, this book has no, so for, I'm as an author, I think I, think I should just make it up clarify up front about what the book is not. The book is not a spiritual book at all. Even though it's about the Puranas, there is no religion, there's no philosophy. It's the science and it's the Puranas. That's it, right? So it said like the title, a subtitle of the book says Modern Science and the Puranas. So every section starts with the science because a lot of people, a lot of us don't know the science, right? Because yeah, unless you're really interested in astrophysics, you wouldn't need to know about it. And then it says what the Purana says, and then it allows the reader to draw conclusions for themselves. Um, and obviously, I, I have a point of view that I want to bring out, and I share that as well, but uh, that's where it is. So the first thing is that it has a very consistent description of the universe. So when you put all the stories together, they add up. They make sense together. They are not just independent stories that we have to talk about. The second thing is that the description is close to science, right? And the third thing is it includes concepts from a few de decades ago. So it's not just, 
you know, Newton's laws of motion that were discovered 300 years ago. It's stuff that we are still discovering now, right? And so that's what I, that's probably the best way to summarize this. Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> so a few words about the Puranas. Not many of us read the Puranas. I thought maybe it's useful to just kind of set some context. The Puranas are not just a collection of stories, right? The Purana Samhita is 18 Mahapuranas and many Upapuranas. And it's considered to be about 1,500 to 2,000 years old. So I don't want to get into a lot of detail, but in that range, you know, broadly speaking, they are encyclopedic. So they contain religion, they contain philosophy, they contain many sciences, right? They contain everything from the science of, from medicine to the science of music and temple architecture, whole bunch of stuff, right? Astronomy. Um, and the universe and its origins is one of the aspects of the Puranas. And I'm so I'm when I when I'm writing about the Puranas, I'm talking, I'm writing about maybe about 10% of the Puranas, right? There's 90% that, in all honesty, I probably don't understand because I don't I don't have the training or the I have not had the personal interest to follow up on the philosophical aspect or the the science of music or, or something of that sort. And this and this story of the universe, this narrative of the universe is communicated through stories and descriptions. So the stories are, people remember stories, right? That's why stories are made. So we remember the stories, but there's also a lot of description. And what I'll do is over the next few slides, I'll give some examples of what the Puranas say about the universe, right? And, uh, and we'll start with the earth and we'll build, our, build it up to the entire solar system. So let's go to the next slide. Um, yeah. So let's start with the earth, right? Uh, the Puranas describe the earth as a sphere, right? So that for a lot of people may not sound really may or may not sound surprising. Most of us know the earth is a sphere, but 2000 years ago, this was big science. It was a big deal, right? And so you can actually see this verse. I cited this verse from the Bhagavata Purana. It says, this your bow form consisting of the three Vedas, this is talking about the Varaha Avtara of, uh, of Vishnu. With the sphere of the earth supported by your tusk appears shining like a great enchanting, enchantingly beautiful Kula Parvata with a cloud resting on its peak. So every time I cite a verse, I'll tell you the Purana that it's from, the book, the chapter, the word. So it's not just a claim. You can go back and anybody that's interested can go back and validate what, what I'm presenting here, number one. The second thing I want to say is that this is not my translation, right? First thing I'm not, I, I don't have, I don't have knowledge of Sanskrit to be able to translate this. And besides, this is Vedic Sanskrit. So it's a, it's a different level. Uh, this translation, most of the translations are by a board of scholars that were set up. It was a whole team of people set up by the government of India in the 50s to translate the Puranas and make them accessible to the world at large. Right? So they were translated into English and uh, published by Motilal Banarsi Das. I have just underlined sphere to to show you the fact that it talks about the earth as a sphere. And this is one verse. There are like, you can find at least a dozen verses, half a dozen verses in every Purana that talk about this. Right? Can we go to the next click again? <clears throat> click, yeah. Yeah. So it talks about the size, right? So it's, so the verse from the Vayu Purana says from Kumari, um, uh, from Kumari to the source of Ganga spread along its uh, northern circuitous way, it extends 9,000 yojanas. <clears throat> so this is from the Vayu Purana. And um, so first thing is, it again talks about the circuitous way. That means it 
talks about the surface of the earth as being a part of a sphere, right? If you click again, Kushal, one more time. Just click again. Ah. So now the uh, Kumari is the Kanya Kumari, and the source of the Ganga is Gangotri. And you can go to Google Maps and you know that the physical distance between the two is about 2,600 kilometers. <clears throat> so now you have, a, you have an equation, right? You have 9,000 yojanas is equal to 2,600 kilometers. Now you'll find in virtually in every Purana in the description of the Jambu Dvipa, it says that it has an extent of about 100,000 yojanas. Now use this formula and convert the 100,000 yojana, you'll get about 28,800 kilometers. And this is the extent of the land. It's the extent of the land mass of the earth, not the entire earth, the land mass of the earth. Okay. Um, okay, let's go to the next slide. Let's talk about the geography, right? So this is from the Vayu Purana again. It says the Jambu Dvipa is vast. So I, so I just want to clarify one more thing, Kushal. Um, I didn't mention that I had read the Vayu Purana. In the list of Puranas that I had read, I had read seven Puranas. But when I had to start writing, I had to research all the Puranas because I wanted to make sure that I was not just getting one piece of it from one Purana that pointed me in one direction. Most of what I'm saying will find reflection in many of the Puranas, but I chose the verse that I thought fitted the context best and told the story best. That's all. I mean, you'll find pretty much the same thing in all the Puranas. Okay. Now uh, it says Jambudvipa is vast and endowed with glory and uh, surrounded on all surrounded or engirt all round by nine khandas inhabited by living beings. It is engirt all over by the Labana ocean or salt ocean, right? Vayu Purana. So the first thing I want to point out, it says it's inhabited by living beings. So which means it points to the planet Earth. So Jambudvipa is the planet Earth where all living beings, all of us live on the planet. The second thing I want to point out is the term salt ocean. So the salt ocean actually means the ocean of salt water. So to summarize what it says is that the Jammu Dvipa is basically a big mass of land surrounded all, all around by an ocean of salt water. So if you click again, um, Kushan, and if you look from the above the North Pole, right, you will see the exact same figure. You will see this is what is called the northern polar view of the Earth. You will see the entire landmass in the center. It is surrounded by the salt ocean, and uh, and it is described in a lot more detail in the book. But I, you get the idea. And you might ask why the North Pole? Because North Pole is associated with Mount Meru, which is the abode of the gods, right? And so you look from above the abode of the gods, and you see this view, right? And this is what is uh, described as described as the geography. Can we go to the next slide? <clears throat> So uh, let's look at the geological history, the events in history, right? Um, so when we talk about history, written history goes back not more than 10,000 years, maximum, right? If you put in the Egyptian and all the, all the rest put together, the maximum it can go back is about 8,000, max 10,000 years, right? But if you want to go really far back into the Earth's past, you have to look at geology. And so when you look at geology, you look at things like ice ages, volcanic eruptions, mass extinctions. And one of the big things in the history of the Earth is the origin of the Earth's waters. So today, scientists agree that most of the waters in the Earth's oceans came from outside, from extraterrestrial sources, from outer space. Right? And they came to us in the form of comets and asteroids. So comets are is basically frozen water. 
So as it comes into the earth, the water just evaporates and then over time falls as rain. Asteroids, when they come in, they burn and they, they have about three to 5% water. They don't have much water, but because over a billion years, a lot of water can flow in, or millions of, hundreds of millions of years, a lot of water can flow in. <clears throat> so click again, next slide. <clears throat> Here is a verse from the Brahmanda Purana. It says, though their waters had been um, dried up when Agastya drank up the waters, the four oceans became full with the waters of Ganga once again. So the descent of Ganga, the story of descent of Ganga that we all know, that we all have, are familiar with at least or have heard about, is not just the holy river that, is not just the river in the north of India that we consider holy. It is the descent of the waters to the planet and the waters filling up all of the Earth's oceans, right? So it's a pretty big event in the Earth's history. And um, obviously, I'm giving you just one verse. There is a whole passage on this, I mean, obviously, a passage on this, which give, describes it in an amazing amount of detail. So we don't have time to go into it. Just click one more time. I think there's one more detail here. Yeah. The story of Sage Agastya drinking up is another event in the history uh, and it's called the Paleocene era. Um, and you can actually time these things because the Puranas talk about the Chatur Yuga and the Manmantra and so on. So you can get a sense for when this thing is happening. And we have evidence of an event like this in the Paleocene era when the waters could have gotten dried up. Okay, So I'll leave it at that. Let's go to the next slide. So we did the Earth. Let's go to the Sun. So the Puranas talk about the distance. So remember, we are talking about this in a document 2000 years ago, right? All of this may sound, you know, yeah, we know all this stuff, right? But this is a document 2000 years ago. And now I'm going to talk about stuff that we don't even know today. A lot of us may not know today. <clears throat> so the Puranas talk about the distance of the sun from the earth, which is about 150 million years and half kilometers. And they are off by about, they're not accurate. They're off by about 15% or so. <clears throat> But interestingly, they talk about the, the, the sun today is a star, right? It's just one of the billions of stars in the universe. And it has a life cycle just like every star has. And modern science ascribes five stages to its life cycle. So I'm not going into a lot of detail here. So there's birth, which is obvious. There is a very young stage of a, called a T-Tauri star. There's a current stage called a main sequence star, which is the uh, sun that we see in the skies today. So in about seven, six to eight billion years, it will become what is called a red giant. So the sun actually grows enormously in size. It swallows up the planets of Mercury, Venus, and finally even Earth, right? And then when all the fuel in it has run out, it just collapses into a very small, very small size, and it's called a white dwarf. And then it dies and just fades away, right? So this is the five-stage life cycle of the sun. Now you're not going to believe this, but the Puranas talk about each of these stages. So if you click once more, Kushan. So the story of the birth of the sun is the story of the birth of Martanda. Martanda is born of Kasyapa and Aditi. The story of the juvenile stage of the sun is the story of the marriage of Samjana, who is the daughter of Vishwakarman and Vivaswan. And you'll not believe this, but the current sun and the red giant sun and the white dwarf sun are actually descriptions in the Brahmanda Purana. So just like a small elementary textbook would just describe it stage by stage, it is described stage by stage. So quite amazing. <clears throat> Can we go to the next slide? 
So in the same context, we have large cycles of time because the sun, the life cycle of the sun is about 10 billion years. And this is the same order of magnitude as a kalpa. So you have to ask yourself, you know, take yourself back 2000 years ago. Why would you even need a number like a billion? Right? There is not a billion dollars. There's not a billion people. There's, unless you're counting grains of rice or stars in the sky or something, you don't need a billion as a number, let alone have a unit of a billion years as a as, as something that people talk about. I mean, there's absolutely no necessity in an agrarian society of having a billion year, 4.3 billion year as a unit of time. But when you look at it as describing the life of a sun, it is then it becomes very clear. So the life of a sun is about, so there's about 7 billion years left and the kalpa is the same order of magnitude, about 4.3 billion years. A kalpa is a, a thousand chaturyuga, so each chaturyuga is 4.32 million years, and we know the the krita dwapara, krita treta dwapara, and the kali yuga. So if you click again, and this is the verse in, in the Skanda Purana, it says, "When a thousand yugas are complete, a kalpa is said to have come to a close. Then all living beings are burnt by the rays of the sun." And I just talked to you two slides back about the red giant sun growing in size and just burning up the earth, right? And so the Skanda Purana doesn't describe it in detail. The Brahmanda Purana describes it in great detail. And I just presented a paper on this a uh, couple of weeks back, actually. I mentioned this to uh, Kushal. You might remember this. Uh, and uh, very well accepted. And so you can see that not only is so this entire event, along with the Kalpa of 4 billion years, is recorded in our texts, right? just as a scientific fact. Can we go to the next slide? <clears throat> Okay, the moon, right? So we did the sun. So it describes the size and the distance of the moon reasonably well. <clears throat> it talks about the um, um, tides on Earth, right? And so um, now we know that there are the phases of the moon. There's the new moon, there's the full moon, and then the other moons in between. And this causes rise and fall of tides and uh, on, on the planet, right? So water rises, sea water rises and falls. Now, this was suggested to modern science 500 years ago around the time of Kepler, but it was actually accepted only 300 years ago. And if you click one more time, uh, Kushal, you see the verse in the Puranas. During the bright and dark fortnights, when the moon rises and sets, the waters in the sea increase and decrease in a quantity that is neither more nor less than usual. So it very clearly makes a connection between the, the moon phase and the um, and the rise and setting of tides so again um, quite surprising quite amazing <clears throat> let's go to the next slide this is this is really interesting <clears throat> so we so the moon our moon is not the north there are many plant many of the planets in the solar system have moons our moon is the most unique moon of them all right and i'm not going to get into a detail but just take my word for it so the current view of the origin of the moon is called the giant impact hypothesis. Now it's a it's a pretty long hypothesis, but very briefly it has three parts. <clears throat> there was an impact many billion years ago of a Mars-sized planet with the Earth. Obviously, the impact was um, was very violent, right? And it created a huge mass of dust which orbited the planet, which orbited the planet Earth. Uh, as a as a debris disk, as a disk of debris, right? And over a period of time, as this disk of debris just orbited the Earth, the um, 
the, there is a process called accretion uh, out of which uh, such a disk will form uh, small heavenly bodies. For example, the formation of the Earth when the, when, the, when the solar system was very young, it was actually just a disk of dust around the sun. And out of that disk of sun, through the same format process of accretion, planets formed. So you just formed the dust that just got into clumps and those clumps became the various planets. Similarly, just like the formation of the Earth, the moon formed a clump and just by the, its own gravitation, essentially, maybe that's the best way to describe it. So it formed the moon, right? So this is this is the science. If you go to the next one, it says, um, so the story of the, many of us know the story of moon and Rohini, but few of us know the full story. And it is given in the Kalika Purana. It's, it's described over two, about some 200 verses or so, some two full chapters. It's a very extensive uh, description of the impact. And, and many of us know the story of the churning of the milk ocean. And if you recall the story of the churning of the milk ocean, one of the first things to come out of the churning of the milk ocean was the moon or after the halahala. So first thing you had the halahala poison that came out of the of churning of the milk ocean and then you have the coming of the moon. And the book demonstrates how closely this these two, the sciences and how these stories are. Can we go to the next slide? <clears throat> So we did the, the sun, the earth, and the moon. So let's go to the Brahmanda, which is the solar system equivalent, right? So the Puranas do not mention either of the two outer planets, Uranus or Neptune. It's nowhere in the Puranas are these two planets mentioned. They are not, they don't show up in the Panchanga, in the Nakshatra system. They just don't exist as far as the Indian texts are concerned. So let's just kind of deal with that. Um, Saturn is about one and a half billion kilometers from the sun, right? Which is about roughly, uh, yeah, one, let's just say one about 10, 10, 10 times the distance of the Earth from the Sun, right? So that's the maybe that gives that gives you an idea of the distance, right? And the verse in the Purana says, <clears throat> the entire Earth is remembered as fifty crores of yojana as an extent, right? So when you take fifty crores yojana, that's the diameter. If you convert it to radius and then convert it to kilometers. It basically maps to the solar system all the way to Saturn. So it goes beyond Saturn all the way to the right up, right up close to Uranus, but not including Uranus, right? And then, then many of the Puranas talk about the Earth as the center of the of this Brahmanda, but the Bhagavata Purana puts the Sun as the center of the uh, Purana, uh, Brahmanda, and it says the Sun is located in the middle of this great egg of the universe, right? Now this is not a this is not a uh, these are not in conflict with, with each other. Geometrically speaking, the Brahmanda is so large and the earth and the sun are so close to each other that the difference is about 4% in the overall scheme of things. So, um, so it's, you know, the observationally, it doesn't make much difference geometrically speaking. So, but it, it's described quite well. Okay, can we go to the next slide? And beyond the Brahmanda, we have what are called the sheets of the Brahmanda. And we have what is called the interstellar medium. So once you leave the solar system, you leave the you leave the solar system and you're in the space between the stars. And that is called the interstellar medium. <clears throat> so the Brahmanda Purana, has, uh, the Brahmanda is described as having four sheets. It has uh, water, fire, air and ether. And let me talk to you about the first couple, right? So the first sheet is water. So it's hard to imagine the Brahmanda being covered with water. But the reality is that 
there is what is there is a shell of um of ice rocks of ice right so there's a shell of space around the around the solar system which has many big chunks of ice in it right so it's frozen water right and this is the source of all the what is called the long period comet so you can just google wood cloud and you will you know you, there's a lot of description you can find so comets are of two types which are the short period comets which come back every 50 60 years or 100 years and then there are long period comets which take more than 2 300 years to come back right uh, they come back to the center of the solar system beyond 200 years so these long period comets originate from the oort cloud and is it's not been observed but it's very pretty well defined i'll come to the fire later but i let's talk about the space between the stars and the solar system right i i i make a comment saying complete absence of light so it might sound strange we think of the space as being dark right completely pitch dark but the reality is there's plenty of sunlight there so every time you send a spacecraft out it has a big um solar panels right which capture the light of the sun and they convert it to energy and power the spacecraft but once you leave the solar system the sun becomes like a like one of the stars in the sky so there's virtually no light and it becomes completely dark and so this is the verse in the puranas so it says it's endless and unmanifest it is boundless it is non self possessed it has neither beginning nor end it is unknown even to the devas it is devoid of all activities it is well known as the extremity of darkness such a beautiful description of the interstellar medium where there's actually no light no activity and this just infinite space practically there right just click one more time and i wanted to come back to this fire discovered by the world so when you think of the when you think of outer space outer space is not only dark it is bitterly cold it is cold to the extent of absolute zero so it is minus 270 degrees centigrade in space right and to think of fire being there it just doesn't make sense right the reality is there are two space probes that nasa sent out called the voyager space probes and they just left the solar they sent it about 20 some years ago they just exited the solar system a couple of years back and what did they find they found a huge wall of fire so you can actually google this huh? you can google nasa wall of fire and you'll come up with this sheet of plasma which is 50000 degrees centigrade extremely hot now most this this sheet now 50000 degrees centigrade can fry most spacecraft right fry everything basically but because it had a heat shield because you need a heat shield for it to get out of the earth right because of the heat created and because it was traveling at very high speed and this region was quite short it managed to make uh, get through it without getting destroyed and it's still sending signals to earth so the voyager spacecraft is still alive and i like to say this half jokingly if the nasa scientists had read the puranas they would have planned for this because this hit them like a complete surprise they had no idea that this thing was out there so i so let's go to the next slide so i want to leave you with a few thoughts to set uh, some context for our discussion so look at the puranas as an encyclopedia of knowledge not as just a collection of stories one of the topics that is covered is about the universe and its origins and the descriptions in the text is very close to science so when i say when i say close to science let me give you an example i talked to you about the sheet of fire that sheet of fire is actually not mentioned in the book 
it's not mentioned in the book because when I was researching it two years ago, I had no idea that it was there. It had not been reported yet, right? Two, two and a half years ago and I was researching this. And so I thought, okay, it's something I don't understand. But I had, but I sent the, to the manuscript to the publisher and then I realized it's going on. I didn't want to rewrite it. So science is not static, right? It's not today's science. Science works on a process of observation and and learning and building on that observation. So unless you have evidence, you cannot have science. And as we have more and more observations, especially in cosmology, we'll have more and more science. And my guess is that we will understand our Puranas also better uh, in the process of uh, discovery. So with that, uh, I'll hand it back to you, um, Kushal. I hope that was, uh, gives some, this is a lot of ground that's covered. I hope it gives you a sense of some of the ground that's covered. All right, so so now time for uh, some of the questions that uh, I had in my mind. So, so uh, okay, let me put it this way. So my first question is that, so when you were going about writing this book, Ganesh, so how do you decide which verse of the Purana intends to say what? Now, now my, my what I'm trying to say is, how do you know what meaning is intended in which verse so i'll give you an example so in chapter two uh there is this verse you share uh i think it was 276 and 278 where it is in the beginning the holy lord created an egg with her belly the powerful fetus was within the egg and then it goes on to describe how the uh you know describe the egg as it was born in 284 to 288 it is like when it was taken out of the belly it resembled a dead lump since yeah. he was born dead mrita as an egg under Savitri, the sun is called Martanda by the learned men. This is the Brahmanda Purana, book Excellent. two, section three, chapter seven. Now, Excellent. why should we not take the Vivaswan and Samnya story, uh, you know, in a different way and not literally? So again, my question is the problem of which verse do we decide to take literally? Which verse do we decide to take in a slightly metaphorical way? I mean where is the measurement criteria what is the qualitative standard where we come up and desire this in a standard manner very good <laughs> good question so i didn't mention this at the beginning so and, and this so like i said I'm, I'm trained as an engineer and we have metrics right as, a, as an engineer unless you have metrics you don't you just can't just make a statement so i at the beginning of the book i actually state this in the book i i set myself three tests, if I can use the word, right? Because it's possible to spin a story, right? You can just read some verses and say, oh, this is what it means. So how do you how do you quantify yourself that it's... So, so the three tests were, first thing is that um, it should be consistent. So whatever story that you put together, it should be internally consistent as a story, right? It shouldn't just be random facts that have just been assembled together. The second test is that it should be close to science, right? I am a person of science and to me, to me, that's the benchmark, right? Because science is established on the basis of evidence. And so if it's based on science, then, you know, it, you know that it is close to some evidence that, that kind of supports it. And the third thing is that I developed, I looked at these as separate narratives. So I had to, I came up with a narrative for the moon, for the sun, for the earth, uh, for the for the planets and the locas and so on, right? And the question was, do these things actually work with each other? So it's easy to, it's not easy. It's possible to come up with five different narratives, 
but are there actually instances in the puranas where um a certain part of the narrative of the earth works well with the narrative of space of the brahmanda or certain part of the narrative of the sun works well with the narrative of brahmanda and so on and so forth so do these things work well amongst each other right so that's the consistent internal consistency test the two internal consistency tests where are they does the narrative function by itself and does does the narrative work with other narratives and the external consistency test is does it work with um does it work with science and the final thing that i actually end the book with and i don't i don't know if you kind of got there is okay so you we, we kind of got a story so what right so i say okay we need to be able to put together a list of events right and so the title of the book is from the beginning of time and when i say from the beginning of time i say it's from the beginning of the current creation which is the current varaha kalpa which is about 2 billion years so i say let's start at 2 billion years ago right and let's say what you can add. so the events in the puranas actually just they either describe the manvantara or they describe the chaturyuga or they describe some detail about the time so use that detail about the time and see are there some geological evidences that can support what you're saying so not only is this you not only do you have the scientific thing but you actually have you, i have tried to look for evidence from a geological perspective so like i said so these these are the four tests that i kind of put together and then let's let's go back to specifically the sun right so when i first read the story of martanda you made specifically that comment it was not obvious to me i'll just be very i'm very upfront with you it's when i got to the description of the red giant sun and there is no there is no sage or god or anything in the description of the red it's a pure description right when i saw that when i saw the description of the white dwarf sun when i saw the current description of this let, let me give you one more example the puranas the brahmanda purana and a couple vayu purana also has a description of the water cycle <clears throat> now the water cycle was is a 2000 year old text right the water cycle was suggested about 3 or 400 years ago by a french hydrologist by a french engineer and accepted by modern science about 300 years ago again it kind of just startled me to see things like these being mentioned in the detail in the puranas right so i say okay it describes the current sun well it describes the red giant sun well it describes the white dwarf sun well may then let me go back and see then i go back and see whether this samjana story looks very similar to what i would expect of a uh, of the young adolescent son the juvenile son the uh, young son basically so i have to go and do some research i have to read it so then i have to put together all the information i have to look at the various um how should i say it various renditions so each each purana will tell the same story but it will add some more detail so i have to put, bring all those details together and say okay now with all the detail that i have does it match what i expect of it from a scientific standpoint so those are the ways i go step by step and build it up but uh, i can't just go to one say i know i know what the story is it, it took me a long long time like i said it was it was after my fourth purana that i really got the hang of oh there's actually something that's going on here that i need to kind of pay more attention to i don't know if i answered your question 
Yeah, but then I have a follow-up. So the problem, uh, Ganesh, over here is that you know it's what you pick from what verse. So let's say Brahmanda Purana. 1, 2, 22, 41, you know, it says the wings of very powerful mountains that had increased in size and who used to go wherever as they pleased were chopped off by Indra who wished to secure the welfare of all living beings. Now, what am I supposed to uh, make of this verse, right? I'm just using this as an example. This is a G, the GV Tagare translation that I'm using yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I, so, so, the, so the short answer is there is a lot in the Puranas that you don't understand. So look at it this way. There's probably 0% that you understood before, or maybe 1 or 2% that we are from the cosmology standpoint. Maybe we understand 20 to 30% now, 20% now of the, of the cosmology part of it, right? And I would be very arrogant if I thought or if I tried to tell you that I under, have a complete understanding of the whole thing. So what I've tried to say in the book is that this is a framework, right? I'm also not an expert solar scientist. I don't think there's any one person who's an expert Puranic scholar and a solar scientist and a geologist and a scientist on the moon, you know, and so on. And so it's not possible. So I say, okay, at least if we can create a framework, then we can reach out to individual experts and say, do these verses match what you expect? And so that is what I'm doing now. So I've kind of focused on just the red giant sun, right? Just that one piece. I've written a paper where I've taken all the research material that is available. And I will, I'm reaching out to professors who teach astronomy, right? And say, does this make sense to you, right? Uh, I mean, I'm give, given both of these things. So I think we need to kind of work through this. I don't know that there is a silver bullet that will fix everything that will give us all the answers. Yeah. And I don't, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it that, you know, as far as astronomy is concerned, there are these, but uh, Ganesh, uh, I don't know how to put it, but if you make a claim that the Puranas uh, are compatible with modern science, but but uh, I mean, I've read a, a few Puranas, but uh, there are, you know, modern science is not just about astronomy. It is about, let's say, embryology. It is about pregnancy. It is about many things. And when, you know, a lot of times when you go through the Puranas and a lot of claims that are made in those sections and in those claims about the Puranas, and I, and I can cite verses. It's not that I'm talking out of the top of my no, head. No, 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 I completely agree with you. Yeah, no. So, so, so to make a statement, so, so here's my question. So to make a statement like that, that so when you say it is scientific, it, uh, are you trying to say that it is partially compatible when it comes to certain astronomical claims? Or Absolutely. It, Absolutely. Maybe that's your point. That's probably the point. Because I have no expert. I actually don't even have expertise in the science of the sun. Yeah, just to be very upfront with you, right? I just think it's very close. I have no idea. So in fact, in my previous interviews, I invite people of other expertise to go and read the Purana. So if you are a medical professional, right? That medical professional probably has a better opinion on the Puranas and the embryology or things like that than I might have, right? I might have, I'm a self-taught astronomer at best yeah, uh, today. And so I don't want to make any claim about this because I have no idea. I, and at least even for the, if for cosmology is something that I, I, I have no formal training, but I, I've spent a lot of time with it. And I'm also humble enough to understand that I'm still not the expert. I still need to reach out to other people and get validation from them. But unless I put all my thoughts in a book, we cannot even have this conversation. That is the, the beginning of a conversation is to make a statement out there saying, you know, this is what I think it is. Let's figure out whether it makes sense or it needs to be tweaked or something of that sort. I, I, I'm not kind of, I'm not close to that 
close to that idea at all. <clears throat> All right. So another query that I had, and this is something I've actually asked a lot of people in my life. Uh, so it's interesting to me every time I have this conversation with people. And, uh, and and once again, I want to put it on record that this is not coming from a place of trying to put anybody or any set of people down. This is coming from a genuine space of curiosity when it comes to me, at least. Right, where right. I, I've always found this thing very fascinating that why I find this whole process of trying to find science within these ancient texts itself. Now, why is it necessary that some ancient books have to be con compatible with what we like to call modern science or the scientific method? First of all, I don't think so. There is anything called modern science. I believe science is a method which has been followed by people since, since eons. Maybe they did not write it down in a proper way. So, at hold on, go, let me let me go back. How long has science been followed? I completely agree with you. So, how many years do you? Maybe a couple of hundred, two, three hundred years. How long do you think modern science has been followed? See, modern science, as we call it, uh, uh, in fact, the Western claim has always been nothing more than maybe a last two thousand years. I disagree with that. I believe the scientific method, which is basically you know having an idea, uh, creating a hypothesis, gathering data testing the hypothesis, looking at the results, then replicating it after a while and then formulating the claim is a very modern method. Having said that, it does not mean that something uh, like this method has not been practiced since time immemorial. Human beings have been doing it for a while. But my question is this, why is it necessary for, uh, it, this is not about the Puranas itself. I see this happening with people doing it with the Quran. People do it with the Bible. People do it with the Vedas. People do it with Greek books, you know, Plato, uh, Plato's Republic, many other books. My point is the moment somebody says, okay, this book is scientific. The by a priori assumption that draws in my brain is that you're putting science at a certain pedestal, which is superior to other memes. I'm not even, I, I could care less. Personally, when I read the Bhagavad Gita, I'm just reading the Bhagavad Gita. When I'm reading a scientific text, I'm reading a scientific test. It doesn't matter whether one complies with the other or one contradicts the other to me at a personal level. But my question is that why is it necessary for the two to match each other? Okay. <clears throat> so good question. Long question. <clears throat> Let me try and break it up into two parts, right? <clears throat> um, the first part is why does as a, as a person that's grown up as a student of science, the minute I see this correlation to me, it jumps out, right? It's like, oh, this is too similar. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's surprising. Maybe I just use the word surprising at this point, yeah? The second thing that I want to say is all science, Kushal, all science starts with a correlation, right? Where you say, Aristotle, many years, I mean, many millennia ago, started out with the saying that all moving bodies come to rest because that's what he observed, right? That was his science, right? Because every time a chariot ran up, it would come to a halt or he pushed something, it would come to a halt. So unlike today's uh, Newton's laws of motion, where a body will continue in motion as long as, you know, forever, he actually said that it will come to a rest because that's what he observed. So, um, so observation has been going on for a long time, but observation is the start of science. It's the first step in science is observation. And to me, um, 
and science you said is a process so it's very well said so in the scientific process the first step is is observing correlation right and so for example if you're doing astronomy and you're studying hundreds of stars or thousands of stars and suddenly a pattern emerges in your studying of when you see whether the size of the star or the color of the star or whatever right and then you say aha i have an insight here so that pattern that you see is the beginning of science is it leads you to form your first hypothesis and so this correlation is a pattern that you're seeing in terms of com compatibility between science and the ancient text so it's the it's the start of a it's the start of an insight basically right? you don't know it because you have to still validate it but you say hey maybe there is something that's going on here that needs to be validated so so understanding correlation between two different things is a part of the scientific process right because it's the first part of any scientific process is to have is to understand correlation the second thing you you said is you said is why do the puranas need to be scientific and this again was an aha thing for me the puranas don't need to be scientific because the brahmanda purana actually talks about the scientific process right? the scientific process that we talk about now remember even though we talk about the observation the hypothesis the testing and so on as the part of modern process all of it was lost during the dark ages right so it's again around the renaissance around the around the 15th century that it restarted again the idea of science restarted again after the kind of the church lost its reins and so on and so forth so in the in the modern sense it's about 500 years old 5 to 600 years old really <clears throat> but here you have again in the puranas you have a verse in the brahmanda purana that i think i mentioned uh, in the book where it says and i thought this was phenomenal it says the learned man um i'm speaking from memory here so i might not, i might not remember the uh, the full words i'm going to paraphrase it it says something along the lines of the learned man acquires knowledge through scripture um observation inference and reasoning four things they, uh, they talk about right and uh, and and it goes on to say they should not accept this as knowledge learned people should not accept this as knowledge unless they test it right and the testing is through evidence or what we call pramana right or what we just call running an experiment is a pramana basically right and so it is amazing in two things first thing is it talks about the scientific process in the brahmanda purana right it talks about the fact is that what you observe is at best um at best and a hypothesis unless you actually put it to test then it becomes real knowledge right so it actually makes the separation between seeing what you see and then accepting it as knowledge that's the first thing the second thing it does is it's it points to the scriptures as one of the sources of information and includes that to be tested as well so basically the word says that even what you read in the scriptures you should test to my mind that is the highest level of um of engagement that you can talk about um you know in 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 any sense because you are generally most most uh, religious texts right they say what i'm saying is the absolute truth and it's not to be denied and not to be argued with and here is a text that we consider canon where which says read what is written here but please analyze it for yourself and test it for yourself before you accept it as knowledge 
And so this process of the scientific process is something inherent in the Puranas. And I think we, we should not treat it as something that's separate that we are trying to marry. I think we need to look at it as, as a part of what Puranas teaches us. So that, I don't know, I, long answer, but I, I, I don't want us to look at the science as a pedestal. I want to look at science as a pedestal in some form because we look at it, we reach the scientific knowledge through an evidentiary process, right? So that, that is important. What I want to also say is that the Puranas are not divorced from this evidentiary process. They also encourage this evidentiary process. And so in that sense, I, it's not in a pedestal, it's inherent in the way we look at the Puranas. Okay, so then my follow-up to that, Ganesh, would be that I think there is a problem here, and that is about the language, right? Now, what we find a lot of times in a lot of uh, books, uh, I mean, I remember a, a while ago, I think it was, I think Professor Makaran Paranjape had written a beautiful article about this in 2017 in Swarajya magazine. Now, I want to read you an excerpt from that. It was about Swami Vivekananda and uh, Tesla and how Nikola Tesla and Vivekananda had a, uh, you know, interaction. Now, I'm just going to read um, something uh, in the end uh, where, uh, you know, Professor Paranjav says, he says, modern physics is busy grappling with the issues of expansion of this universe, the cosmological constant, the fundamental particles that arose right after the Big Bang explosion, the unified field theory, and so on. But the question alluded to indirectly by Vivekananda, namely, what gives rise to Akasha and Prana is even today considered metaphysics rather than physics. Moreover, the, the moment of quantum mysticism has also passed. Appropriated by new age faddists, attempts to connect physics with Eastern philosophy have come to be regarded by most practicing scientists as pseudoscience or quackery. Despite brave attempts by the likes of Amit Goswami, the desire to offer a Vedantic picture of the universe that also satisfied the truth conditions and methodological demands of contemporary physics may be said to have largely failed. Nevertheless, what we notice are interesting parallels in the manner in which the two sides conceptualize or imagine reality. Now, here's the thing. This is the key part. These parallels or resemblances are mostly metaphorical. That is, they create the effect of narrative likeness. However, the two languages that of science and spirituality are distinct without no possibility of overlap, at least at present. The language of science, no matter how closely it may seem to that of spirituality, is actually mathematics with precise sounding equations and fixity of meaning. The proof is through experimental verification. The theory must fit the data. The language of spirituality, on the other hand, is poetic, reveling in figurative language, open to a hundred different interpretations. It is impossible, therefore, to collapse the one into the other. I think this pretty much sums up the parallels between the Puranas and modern yeah, science, yeah. don't you think? Wrong, 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 right? Uh, uh, Swami Vivekananda is approaching it from a spirituality. I made a made a clarification right in the beginning. There is no spirituality in this book at all. Zero, right? It just talks about science and it talks about uh, the Puranas and it talks about parallels. That's it. And you may like the parallels. You may say, I. I'm interesting, but I'm not interested in it, but that's as far as it goes. Spirituality, by its definition, talks about a different plane of our existence, right? And maybe our vocabulary has to be what it has to be. It, has, it can't be the vocabulary of equations and so on that, as an engineer, that I feel comfortable with, right? So I, I don't want to go into the world of spirituality. Not because I don't believe it. I have a I have a belief in it. That's a separate thing. But I have not able to 
I'm not able to put an equation around it or put an equivalence around it that is very hard. And so to me, it's very personal and it stays personal. But, but when I see a description of the red giant sun in the Puranas, there is no spirituality in the Puranas relating to the red giant sun. It is a step-by-step -step description of what happens to the sun and the earth as the sun grows in size and swallows up the earth. There is no room for spirituality here. It's a hard science. It's just a description. And so when I look at it, I say, so, and now stepping back a little bit, the Puranas also talk about philosophy. I'm not dealing with philosophy. The Puranas talk about a lot of things. So like I said, the description of the universe is probably 10% of the Puranas, right? There's a 90% of the Puranas that I'm not, that I don't feel competent to deal with quite simply. It's only the 10% and maybe, a, and I, I feel comfortable interpreting a part of this 10%, right? Maybe about say 30% of this 10%, right? So we are down to about, right about 3% of the Puranas, right? If you just do the, uh, the numbers. So two things, there is no spirituality that I'm talking about. Each of us are spiritual beings. Some of us may choose to acknowledge it. Some of us may choose not to acknowledge it. And that's a personal choice. I choose to acknowledge it, but that's nowhere reflected in the book. I don't want to talk about it in the book because that's not where, um, that's, I, I'm not, I don't feel competent enough to be able to make uh, a good equation there. Maybe that's the best way to say it. So I, I think, um, so I, first thing, I'm not aware of uh, this, this interesting uh, article that you talked about. And, um, and I, I would not venture into trying to marry spirituality. Though I so my personal feeling is that maybe in 15 years we'll get there. Maybe, right? I just feel because of the lot of work that's being done around consciousness and so on, maybe we'll get there. But we're not there today. We're really not, not there today at least not to my comprehension, right? Nothing that I can articulate, I, I can either comprehend or articulate. And what I can see and articulate is cosmology and cosmology is very real. There are equations around how the earth grows in size, uh, how the sun grows in size and swallows up the earth. It is a very physical process and that process has an impact on the earth and that process is very clearly defined in the Puranas. Now, the question remains, how would the Puranic texts know this? And the answer is, I don't know, right? It's a very honest answer. I don't know, right? That doesn't mean, so we can break this up into two questions, right? What is the information they contain? How did they get this information? These are two separate questions and two separate fields of inquiry. I think we are at the nascent, the beginning parts of the first question, right? In the first innings of the first question, right? Maybe first opening batsman and things like that. And I think we need to kind of work our way through this process and figure out where it leads us. I, I don't know. I hope I, I, I that was a prop, proper answer. All right. So I'm going to give you now a few questions that uh, the live viewers have asked. So the first one is by Shiprita, who says, so what was the value of the Yojana that was taken? I mean, uh, is it saying it's a, is it fixed or not? Like, uh, is it fixed across all Puranas or it keeps varying from one very Purana good, to the other? Very, very good question. Very good question. So in the book, I actually mentioned that the Puranas themselves have four different values of the Yojana, right? So the Puranas themselves, the normal value of the Yojana that is used in the Arthashastra is about 12.3 kilometers. I just used the, so when I gave you the calculation uh, of the um, of the earth, right? I said a thousand, that is, it is nine, it says 9,000 yojana between 
um, between Kanyakumari and uh, and Gangotri, that is a verse from the Puranas. So if you calculate that, it's about uh, 2.8 yojana to a kilometer. It's actually the other way around. So I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from memory here. I don't know exactly. So it's about three, three yojana to a kilometer. And then there is uh, at other places, there is eight yojana to a kilometer. So the so it's useful to think of it at the yojana. The word yojana actually means plan, right? And in a plan at the bottom, you have a scale. And so it looks like this is like the scale of a plan. So it 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 kind of seems to vary about uh, in depending on the use. For example, in the Surya Siddhanta, they seem to use a slightly different, and it's kind of quantified there what, what the different number is. And so the question is very valid for the computation of the distance of the uh, extent of the earth, I have used 12.3 kilometers. For the computation of the extent of Jambu Dvipa, I have just calculated from what the Purana itself says, right? It says 9,000 kilometers, 9,000 yojana, and it's 2,600 kilometers, which gives to 3 yojana to a kilometer. So you have a, quite a range inside the Puranas themselves. Very good question there. <clears throat> All right. So also Puranas are kind of localized texts, right? They are about a specific area or a region. So how does one extrapolate that in this larger narrative that you have been weaving? So there are three kinds of Puranas. There is a Mahapurana, there is an Upapurana, and there's a third Purana called a Sthala Purana. The Sthala Purana is for that region. So the Sthala Purana for Kashmir is called the... Um, the name slips my mind. Yeah. So there it has every region has its own Sthala Purana, right? Not every region, many regions have their own Sthala Purana that still come to us. And so they talk about events in that place, specific to that place. The Mahapuranas talk about the universe, right? And so so they have the Panchalakshana, which is the Sarga, Pratisarga, Vamsa uh, Charita, and so on and so forth, right? Those are the five things which includes the creation, primary creation, and the dissolution of the universe. So when I talk about the passage in the red giant sun, it is the chapter is called the dissolution of the universe in the Brahmanda Purana. And, I, and the, the book quotes the chapter and the verse and so on and so forth. So I don't remember it offhand. Uh, you can take a look at it. So a Mahapurana has the creation of the universe, has the creation and the dissolution of the universe and the lineage of kings and histories and so on and so forth. Sthala Purana can be very local. It may not have many of the other things that uh, Mahapurana has. All right. So I want to talk about something that you have written in chapter 17. You say this is not meant to be a criticism of the scientific view of the universe. This apparent limitation is inherent within the scientific process. The scientific process is evidence-based. Until about half a century ago, the tools of observation available to science around us to peer as far as the edge of our soul, solar system. As a result, all the hypotheses are built around this set of observations. The scientific constructs are therefore constrained by what could be observed within our solar system. So now the question to you is, how is this a problem? It's a problem. <coughs> uh, first off, um, I really appreciate your re <laughs> reading it in so much detail and asking me for this question. That was, uh, it requires a lot of work and I, I really appreciate you having taken the time to do go through this in this level of detail so um so i so i at the end of this, this is close to the end of the book if i'm not mistaken right and i offer a view of the universe. it is from chapter 17 yeah 17 right so chapter uh, chapter 18 is pretty much the end and this is chapter 17 so um 
So I offer a view of the universe, which is slightly different than science. Let me first say this, and I think it might be, it might have been obvious to you. <clears throat> but for example, the Purana, so when, when modern science talks about, um, when modern science talks about the comets, like it's, so until let's say 25 years ago, we just thought that the water in the oceans just was always there. Right? We never thought where it came from. And now it's clear, you know, there is the uh, Japanese mission, mission called the Hayabusa mission that's actually gone to asteroids and collected uh, samples and kind of validated the uh, deuterium signature of that water with that in the earth. And there's a lot of work that's been done. <clears throat> um, and But even today, the feeling is that the it's from comets and the comets are in the solar system and the solar system emerged from the sun. Right, So it's very simple. It's a very closed-end system. The Puranas actually say that the water did not come from the sun, but the Ganga comes from the center of the Milky Way, right? So if you look at the entire story of the Ganga, she her home is the Milky Way, is the heart of the Milky Way. Actually, if you read the Brahma Vaivarta Purana, it describes it in great detail. And, and so you have a 2,000-year-old text talking about the water originating from far in the Milky Way and you have modern science saying, well, it's all, it's all came from the sun. And then you step back and say, how is this possible? You know, you, you really think science would have a more expansive view of the universe than an ancient text, basically. And it is a hypothesis that I offer that, you know, science has to have evidence. Without evidence, you cannot have science, right? That's, and that's, that is the strength of the process of the scientific method. Now, if you look at the past 50 years, we had the telescopes we had, right? It's only recently we've had, you know, we've had the um, telescopes that can look out into, far out into space. We've actually taken a telescope and put it out into space so that it can, it is not blocked by the, uh, by the dust in the atmosphere and, and so on and so forth. So we've done a lot of work on this. And so we have an enormous amount of data that's coming in now that we did not have 25 years ago. So if our current theories are based on observations 25 years ago, then they, by definition, are based on that mass of data. My guess is that in the next 10, 15 years, as all these various observational platforms start providing enormous, are providing enormous amounts of data, for the first time we've sent a probe to the sun, right? So we are going very close to the sun and getting data. and. And you also need computational tools to analyze this amount of data, right? So you need computing power, you need, you need a lot of things that you can do to actually be able to access and put, make sense, see patterns in this data. And as this happens over the next decade or so, I think, um, I, I think we will, our, our view of the universe may change materially. That's my sense. I could be wrong. You know, it's, that's just a hypothesis at this stage. Yeah, so it's quite very interesting. So just to add that verse from the Brahmanda Purana, it's 151 that you say the learned man should comprehend and retain and believe by means of scripture, inference, perception and reasoning after testing intelligently and carefully. So right. here's my point, right? But the claims of the Puranas, have they been tested really? So and so, so how do you test the claim of a Purana? You can say you don't have to test the claim of a Purana, but you can say that the Purana describes a process that is similar to the process that has been tested scientifically, right? So I go through a scientific process and arrive at what the red giant sun looks like today, 
right? Or what my view of the red giant sun is. That is an outcome of the scientific process. If what I read in the Puranas is matches that very closely, then I can say that it matches model. In that sense, I'm validating it with something that has come out of science, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. All right. So, again, so you talk about in chapter 13, the Puranas suggest three parts, right? Uh, the bit where there is a path of bhakti and then there is a part of ritual, etc. Now, here's my point. So, there itself inside the Purana. So we cannot deny that it is a spiritual text when the text itself says there is the bhakti part, there is a ritual Absolutely. part. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So let me complete. So which Sorry. is where now I take you back to my original question. To, to deny that the Puranas are not a text uh, which talks about spirituality would itself be inaccurate, right? Which is again where we go back to the problem. No, no, no. So maybe I didn't. That's why I said I, I probably need to. When I said the the book does not contain spirituality, I said my book does not contain spirituality. Right. The book that I've written is just about the scientific part of the Puranas. That's why in the beginning, if you see my opening slide, if you if you kind of go back to it, I talk about the Puranas contain religion, philosophy and science. Right. It contains these three things. So and it contains it in a lot of detail. Of the science, it contains many sciences. I am looking at one of those sciences, which is the origin of the universe, and I'm trying to comprehend a part of it. So the Puranas are an ocean of knowledge. The book that I've written covers a small part of it and does not cover anything. to. It does not have anything to do with spirituality or with religion. It is just the science of the Puranas and how well it stacks up against what we see today. Okay, so this 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 one is, uh, as they say, off the left field in baseball terminology, or this is a googly, somebody has asked. They say, do you believe psychedelics may have played a vital role in the genesis of Hinduism? I, I would say the Puranas in this case, like the hypothesis that Somras was a psychoactive substance in nature. So how much of a role do you think psychedelics have played in these texts? I have no idea and I don't. So this is, a, like I said, I tried to stay very close to science. There is no science that tells me anything one way or the other. So there's no need for me to have an opinion on this. I'll go back to the point that you made earlier, Kushal, right? You said that there are a lot of claims and count, you know, there's a lot of claims all over the place. So in that environment, it is very, very critical that we stay very close to what we understand and what we can validate. And that is what I've tried to do. So this is this is how there is a lot in the Puranas. There's a lot that I have no clue about. This is what I can understand. And here's what I can validate. And here's what I'm presenting. And it is fairly compelling. And right? it's not just a verse or two. There are whole narratives about the about the universe that are pretty compelling that I wanted to present. So and I, I really don't know. The short answer is I have no idea. <laughs> so so before I let go of you for the day, because I'm conscious of our time too. So what if in the future, Ganesh, we have some discovery in physics or quantum mechanics or, or any other field of astronomy that might directly contradict the claims of some of the Puranas? So what would your conclusion about the Puranas and their cosmology be at that point of time? So I, 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 I went back to what you said, what I said. I want to take you back to what I said some time ago, right? Uh, the Puranas are a static document. You can't rewrite it, right? 
right? It's mm -hmm. whatever is, is written is written, right? Whether you like it, you don't like it too badly, right? Science is a continuously evolving thing. So I actually write in the book, if I had, so I don't know the future, but I know for a fact that if I had read, if I had tried to do this analysis 200 years ago, it would not talk about the life cycle of the sun. It would not talk about the origin. It would talk, talk about nothing, right? And 200 years ago, we had scientists. We had giants like Newton and so on. We had very intelligent people on the planet, but they would, if they had read the Puranas, it would have sounded like a nice bunch of stories, right? It would have had no, no correlation with anything that they knew. The smartest people of the time, right? And so now science will keep progressing. Uh, it's possible that we, so let's take something like, you know, um, dark energy. Now, we, we, it's a very well widely accepted theory, but nobody's seen it. Nobody's kind of inferred it, but uh, or nobody can kind of observe it or, you know, and though a lot of, there's a lot of energy being devoted to it. Now, is it in the Puranas? Nothing I can see, right? It's not obviously not there. So do I think it's wrong? I have no idea, right? And so do, and do the, like 10 years ago, string theory was everywhere. And suddenly now people are feeling maybe it's running out of steam. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't, as a, as a person of science, you don't rush to judgment on things like this. You want to let things settle down and you say, hey, there's something that is disconnected that I don't understand. Well, I don't understand, right? Not understanding is the beginning of your, of curiosity, right? You can only be curious and be a man of, you have, you can only be a man of science if you're curious. If you can only be curious, if you say there is something that's going on here, that's not clear to me that I don't understand and I need to find out some more. So I just, let's say, okay, I'd stand back and say, I'm not sure what's going on here. Maybe I need to find out some more. I don't think I'd rush to judgment on whether one is right or one is wrong or not. So I hope. I hope that kind of helps set this. All right. So before we wrap things up, Ganesh, could you tell everybody, is there any other project that is up in the, you know, you know, uh, upcoming in the future? Well, what are your next plans after this book? Actually, I'm not, I, I never plan to write any book. So I'm not planning to write the second book. <laughs> be, uh, I don't know. So I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't plan on writing this book. I, if I end up writing a book, it might, it might happen, but uh, Definitely not something I planned on, but you know, I but I think I kind of alluded to this earlier on in our conversation, and I said, I think it's nice to have a framework, right? The book is a is a first step, so the next step is to see if we can reach out to people in the sciences, people that have more expertise than I have, even in things like astronomy, right? I mean, I'm not an I'm not a I'm not a solar scientist or a lunar scientist or something of that sort. Reach out to people in these in these areas of expertise in these areas and work with them and get their validation, right? And of course, they need to have some familiarity with the Puranas to be able to talk about it. But kind of bring this framework to them and say, does this make sense? And so we'll see where it goes. Um, and uh, the other thing is, hopefully, you know, I, you know, I, I'm a self-taught, I, I I have an active interest in astronomy and the space sciences. Maybe there are other people in your audience who are interested in the medical sciences or in architectural sciences or philosophies or something, observational astronomy, right? And maybe they can read the Puranas and find out a whole new uh, area of depth that we never imagined a 2,000-year-old 2000, 2000 text to have. So 
I'd, I'd leave them there and uh, and I think the more people that work on this, uh, the better for all of us, the more we'll understand the the richness of these um, of these texts. So that's where all right. I guess that's fair enough. So, so I guess it's time to wrap uh, wrap up today's chat. So, once again, before we go, Ganesh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Kushal. Thanks. Uh, for, most importantly, thanks for the amount of time that you spent with the script. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, the level of detail that you've gone to and uh, your questions are very valid. And uh, I'm glad we had an opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. All right, guys, time to wrap up today's discussion. So before I wrap things up, I would like to give you a, a few pieces of information. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast on, on the audio version, whether it's on SoundCloud, Spotify, it doesn't matter, or you're watching this on YouTube right now, I would request each and every one of you to go to the description. I've left the link of uh, Ganesh's book in the par, uh, in the description of the podcast in uh, the both. Uh, the audio and the video version itself by his book. Uh, when I read this book, I found it very interesting because I used to, uh, you know, I, I like to find out many snippets. So out of it, because you know, what, had, what, what happens is at times when you read the Puranas, right? I mean, I read them a, a long, long time ago. I mean, my lens was very different. I, I read it from the lens of a skeptic. Ganesh read it from a different lens and it's always interesting to you know read uh, people and uh, their lens and uh, there's one more thing you know a lot of times people I mean people know this is a Charvak podcast so they know where I come from they literally know the name says itself but the point is that uh, you know I would be damned if I did not let alternative voices come and showcase their point of view on the podcast because uh, I believe in genuine exchange I mean I've had people who believe in Vastu Shastra come on the podcast while I may be a skeptic uh, on that too. I've had people who think Article 370 should not have been removed, although I think it should be removed. But I still had a chat with them. The aim of this podcast is not create an echo chamber where I basically call people who agree with me all the time. The aim of this podcast when it was founded you know, three and a half years ago by me sitting in my little room was that I want to have conversations with people where we open our horizons. It cannot be possible that Modern science has all the answers. It cannot be possible that religion has all the answers. I don't know which which memeplex has all the answers. I'm on the side of modern science. Let me put it very clear. Having said that, it does not mean that I will close my eyes like a lot of new atheists who refuse to engage with anything religion has to offer. I just think that's a very bad way to look at it. I believe religion is a really strong meme and we should take whatever we offer. Like even I'm a student of philosophy. I have my 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 basic life philosophy is uh, you know uh, and you know karma kar fal ki fal ke tera adhikar nahi hai. that that's the sar of uh, that message and and i nishkam karma is something that i deeply am influenced by then you know the jain philosophy of syadvad anekantvad you know that's my moral ethical code that that's how i live that's why i'm so open to many things on the side of religions and on the side of skeptics. So my request to you is that it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a disbeliever, skeptic or or whatever you want to call yourself, astic or nastic, Ishwarwadi or Nirishwarwadi. What you should have is an open mind. When provided with a book, read it, write down questions, ask those questions to the author. And then it doesn't matter at the end of the day whether you agree with each other or not. What matters is that 
you tried your best to understand the other side so i'll end today's podcast on that note once again i'll request each and every one of you to subscribe to the channel like the video leave your comments once again buy ganesh's book and please support the charvak podcast you can support it by subscribing on patreon or becoming a member on the youtube channel buying merch or sending direct donations to the upi id uh, i try my best to give you all these conversations i don't fall for the internet clickbait so i really appreciate all the support that i get all the time i'll leave you guys for today until next time namaste take care goodbye